Philippians chapter number one. We will continue our thoughts from last week as we unpack the first two verses of Philippians. If you are new to the church, welcome. And uh, we have for about three weeks now, we began a series working through the book of Philippians, which we love to do as a church. We love to just open up a book of the Bible and work through it systematically verse by verse because what the Bible will do is it will make you address topics that you wouldn't naturally address if you do verse by verse. And sometimes it will steer you away from topics that you would want a hobby horse and you would want to address all the time, but it, it helps you to steer away from that. So we've started Philippians. Up until this point, let me just give you a 60-second crash course on what we've covered. We started with Acts 16 because Acts 16 tells the story of the church at Philippi and its inception. And we saw Paul and three other guys, this little quartet, go to Philippi and start this church. And there in Philippi, you have a story of three different people that come to faith in Jesus Christ. You have Lydia. Lydia is the CEO businesswoman, has money, she's a fashionista, and she comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. Then immediately after Lydia is really the opposite of Lydia. There's this little slave girl who's, who's owned by her masters, apparently has some sort of demonic influence and is able to fortune tell, and this girl comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And then after her is this Philippian jailer, this this calloused ex-soldier, got the, got the stink bug again, this calloused ex-soldier who tortures Paul and Silas for the fun of it, apparently, and he comes to faith in Christ. And you find that the inception of this church is, it's just this eclectic bunch of people. These people you would naturally never put together, but they come to faith in Jesus. They're united under the umbrella of the gospel in, in the name of Jesus Christ, and they come together in the church and say, let's do this. Let's, let's work together. Let's serve the Lord together. And you find that the gospel does what the gospel does best. It begins to break down human constructs and barriers. It begins to obliterate race and gender and socioeconomic lines and aptitude levels. And it just, it washes all that away and says, we all know and love Jesus. Let's come together and let's be a band for Jesus. So that was the inception. And we started last week to work through this book. 10 years have passed. A decade has passed. Now Paul, who started this church, sits in a prison cell in Rome and now he writes to the church from Rome. And I want us to read the first eight verses together. We'll just get through verse two this morning. But I want, I want to underscore once again the love and the affection that Paul has for these people at Philippi. They are near and dear to his heart. Philippians 1, verse number one, this is what the word of God says. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet or even as it is fitting for me to thank this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God's my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels or in the affections of Jesus Christ. I want us to see and continue our thoughts this morning 
on these first couple verses of Philippians and what I'm calling just a greeting with significance. And these first two verses are so fitting and that really you have to understand them. They're a guide to the letter as a whole. Let's read again the first two verses and see if we can't finish these this morning. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I will remind you just briefly of what we said last week. These words are not meaningless pleasantries. It's not, dear John, sincerely yours. These are not words that are designed to be perfunctory. They're not words that we can just gloss over and move on to some better stuff. Really, these words are, are critical guides to understanding this letter as a whole. And there is a ton that is compressed down into these two verses. So last week we covered about half of it. We said first they're senders. So Paul and Timothy are the ones that are writing to this church. Primarily Paul, probably by the pen of Timothy, but he's dictating this. And the, the note here is that Paul does not feel a need with this church to claim his apostolic authority. So typically when Paul would write to a church, if you read your Bible, you'll find that he says something along the lines of Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He'll say, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle, I'm the boss. Let me remind you of that because I'm about to correct you, rebuke you, give you new doctrine. I'm about to lay something out for you. What you find in the Philippian letter is there is no apostolic authority. It's just Paul and Timothy, you know us, we know you, you love us, we love you. And Paul is attempting to just emphasize once again the, the warm nature and the heartfelt nature of this letter as he writes to those at Philippi. And he says that Paul and Timotheus, that they had a status. And he says their status was that of, as a servant of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, me and Timothy gladly, willingly welcome the title of servant. We will be tools in the hand of our master. God's goals are my goals. God's mission is my mission. His agenda is my agenda. I have surrendered to him. Whatever he wants, I'm okay with. There's nothing that's out of bounds. There's nothing that's off limits. Whatever God says I will do, I will even give my life if I need to. And I want Jesus to sit on the throne of my heart and be my king. And I want to live life for him. And Paul and Timothy say, this is our status, we're servants, and it's not designed to be, oh, they were upper, upper echelon of Christians, they can do that, and me, you know, I could never do that. No, it's meant to teach us that that should be our heart and mindset of King Jesus. Sit on my heart, I will gladly be your servant, and I want you to rule and to reign in my life. And I would contend biblically, as we did last week, that that is a reasonable expectation. If you really understand what Jesus has done for you with his death on the cross and his burial and resurrection, that's a reasonable expectation. Then we looked at the spot. He writes to the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. Now, this is important because Paul is writing to a local church. And the reason this is important is because God's mission to get the gospel to the world runs through local churches. And God's agenda for your life to grow you and develop you and to mature you in Jesus Christ runs through a local church. Now, it may not be this local church. It may be that you're from out of town and this is not your church home. Welcome, glad you're here, but you should have a church home. You may be visiting this morning. You're looking for a church home in the area. We, I'm biased. I love our church. I think it's the best ever. But if it's not this place, there should be somewhere that you're plugged in, that you're accountable to, that you are able to do life with other people. That's important. 
We're not designed to live our life in this vacuum of accountability where no one knows us and no one's able to speak into our lives and tell us, hey, you're thinking some, some, some ways that are dangerous. Hey, you are, you're acting this way. Hey, you, you know, you're, you're working way too much. She's 13. You're only going to be a dad once. It's going to fly by. Quit chasing money. You need people to speak into your life and to tell you those things. And that comes through a local church. So a local church is important. We, we talked all about this last week. You cannot love Jesus and not love the church. It's a modern concept to think that way, and, and, it, and it's an unbiblical hatching of our imaginations. You can't love Jesus and not love the church. Jesus Christ instituted the church, died for the church, purchased the church with his own blood. He's the head of the church, and the church is his bride. He loves it, so if you love him, you have to love it too. They go hand in hand. Cyprian said it best in 250 AD. Cyprian said, if you have God as your father, you have the church as your mother. So Paul is writing to a local church and telling them, look, I have some instruction to you. And beyond that, I want us to get to some new content today. He lays out a structure. And this structure is simply what I'm going to call saints, shepherds, and servants. He puts it as saints, bishops, and deacons, but he does prescribe a structure for how a local church should operate and how a local church should function. So first, he gives us the word saints. He says right in the middle of verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now let me deconstruct this word saints for just a few moments because it's subject to a ton of misunderstanding. Saint, the word saint in the Bible is a very broad term. It is not a narrow or exclusive term at all. It is an extremely broad term and frankly, the word needs to be emancipated from a lot of just misconceptions and, and false thoughts about it. And I would say, especially if maybe you have a, a Roman Catholic background. How many maybe are part of the Roman Catholic Church? Maybe you're visiting this morning or you grew up Catholic. That would be your background, a Roman Catholic background. Okay, so uh, I would say probably close to half the room or so, which is, which is what I thought. Um, let me just say for a moment, I'm going to contrast kind of the, the Catholic view of saint and the biblical view of saint. But before I do, I will say, if you're here and have a Catholic background, or maybe you're, you're visiting, you are Catholic, I'm going to be a little bit facetious, okay? I'm, I'm going to poke a little bit of fun, not because I hate Catholic people. We, we had a, an event uh, yesterday where we, it was a, a pro-life event, and I ministered alongside of a, a Catholic family that belongs to a parish in Wexford, and we had a great time. So, don't, I don't want to set anyone's teeth on edge. I will have a little bit of fun. If you want to poke fun at Baptists afterwards, have at it, you know. They, they're so formal in their dress, and they shake hands. Like, it's the middle of flu season. Why are you shaking hands? It's weird. You know, go ahead. It, it's fine. You, you can make fun of us, too. But here is, here is a, a bit of the, the Catholic prescription, like literally from the church, of how someone would, would become a saint. So there's, it's like a 10-step process to become a saint. So first, step one is you have to be Catholic. So you can't be, you know, another denomination and, and end up being a saint. Step two, you have to die, which is kind of a bummer, but you do end up, ha you have to die, which that alone should maybe set off a little bit of a red flag and that Paul is writing to the saints at Philippi and he wasn't in prison writing to dead people. Like he was writing to living people, but in Catholic tradition currently, you, you, Catholic, then you die. Then there begins, step three, there begins to be kind of this groundswell of appreciation for you. Just kind of locally, people begin to appreciate. Maybe I'll light some candles to you, memorialize you, appreciate you, say prayers, something of that nature. And there begins to be some devotion that grows up. Step four, someone from the Catholic Church comes and investigates. Now, 
I don't know what the investigators look like. In my mind, this is the part where I'm a bit facetious, but in my mind, it's like a robe and a long white beard and a clipboard, but I have no idea what, what that person looks like. But they show up and they investigate, and they, they give that in, the investigative report to the bishop. The bishop sends it to the Vatican. It's on file. Step six or seven, uh, local people begin to pray that you would do a miracle posthumously. That they begin to pray to you, your deceased, that you would do some miracle on their behalf. Step eight, said miracle happens. And local investigator guy shows back up to investigate, clipboard and beard again, and shows back up and investigates. If he deems that that did in fact happen, then you're, you're blessed. You're not a saint yet, but you're on your way. You're like JV, on your way to varsity. You are, you're in the game. You're kind of on the team. You're blessed, but you're not a saint yet because there still has to be more prayers and one more miracle that's done on your behalf. And if that miracle is deemed to be credible, then cowabunga, you're a saint. That's, that's the 10-step process. And once you're a saint, then, you know, a church can be named after you or, or a hospital or, or a local children's fund or, or you can have a statue made of you or be immortalized in a glass window or if you're real lucky, you'll get your face put on a candle and they'll stock it next to the tortillas at Giant Eagle and people can buy it. So that is, that's the, the Catholic kind of saint view, which, which even, uh, even a Catholic a cardinal or bishop would admit that there's a lot of kind of tradition that has infiltrated into that, that there's a lot of, just over the years, it's, it's evolved into something. The, the biblical way to be a saint, honestly, is about as simple as you could possibly get. It's one step, and it's three words. And Paul gave them to us. He said, to the saints in Christ Jesus. That if you are in Christ, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if, if he is yours and you are his, if you have a relationship with him and you can honestly say, I know that Jesus Christ has saved me, I've put my faith and trust in him and him alone. He died for me in my sins. He was buried and he rose again. I could not save myself and I understand that I could not save myself and I put my faith in him. Then you can honestly, accurately, biblically say, I'm a saint. A saint, biblically, is extremely broad. It's just meant to, when you see it in the Bible, employed, it's meant to just define people that are Christians, that are followers of Jesus, that know Jesus Christ. It is extremely possible to live like a scoundrel and still be a saint. You say, prove it. I'm glad you asked. I will. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2 Paul writes, and this is in your notes if you, if you want to read it, Paul writes in the second verse of, of his letter to the Corinthians, and he says, under the church of God, which is in Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, if you know anything about the book of Corinthians, Paul starts out with two verses of introduction. It's like, hey, I'm writing to you people, you're saints, and then he spends 14 chapters obliterating them. Like he spends 14 straight chapters after that taking them to task because they're living like scoundrels. They are, they are divisive. They are manipulative. They're, they're fornicating. Some guy's marrying his mother and they're celebrating it. They're, they, they, like literally, this is, it's, in, it's in there. Like that's real. They are, they're a disaster. They're a train smash. And Paul writes them and says, this is wrong and that's wrong and just kind of just slaps them upside the head a bunch but he starts that letter with your saints. So it is, it is biblical and very possible for someone to accurately say, I'm a saint, but at the same time live a life that's not pleasing to the Lord. Now, does God want that to be the case? Absolutely not, but that is possible. Saint is meant to just describe someone who 
is a normal Christian, someone who has real struggles and real problems, and it's not meant to characterize this, this extreme example of piety or someone who just acted so courageously or gave so sacrificially that now they're, in, they're cut above the rest of us. It's meant just to describe ordinary, everyday Christians. Now, this is important, and it begins to bear down on us and weigh on us when you start to consider the applications of this. C.S. Lewis argued that those who are not believers in kind of our generation, he argued that they suffered from chronological snobbery, which is basically the idea that cultured modern-day Americans look back at people in the Bible and think, you know what, those people were so antiquated and so outdated and so gullible that certainly they would have believed that Jesus guy rose from the dead, but me, I have much more education, I have, much, I have so much more of a sensibility, and there's, there's no way I'm so much more sophisticated that I would believe that because I'm not as gullible as they used to, as, as they used to be. And he contended that people looked back and inaccurately viewed people and, and put them down. Now, I do believe that that's true for people that aren't Christians, but I believe the opposite of that is true for people that are Christians. Many Christians suffer from chronological fantasy, and that they look back at the people in the Bible, and they think those people in the Bible were so good and so awesome, that was super Christian or, or Christian woman, and I could never possibly be as good as Paul or Lydia or whoever it is. And if you're not careful, I'm not careful, you can begin to see people in Scripture and elevate them to this position that they have a relationship with Jesus and a level of commitment to him that I could never have that they had. And we, we can begin to mythologize the biblical characters and think that they were just, I mean, I wish that maybe one day I could meet someone that was that good. You know, there's, there's dragons, unicorns, Bigfoot, and then the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was just so good, it's tough to believe, which is not at all biblical. Because even, even Paul, who was a great Christian, but he writes about his own personal walk, and he tells you, I am the chief of sinners. Like, I legitimately sin a lot. I feel like I sin more than anybody else. Paul writes in Romans and tells us, the things that I want to do, I don't end up doing them. And the things that I don't want to do, I don't want to do A, B, and C. I end up doing A, B, and C. Anyone ever live there? You set out in a week and you said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a relationship with God and I'm going to pray and I'm going to be in the Word and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church and I'm, I'm going to do all this and I'm not going to do da 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 And you get to the end of the week and you did all that and you didn't do that. Paul said that. He said, that's me. I struggle with this. I war with my flesh. I have, this, I have this struggle that's inside of me. I love Acts 27 and 28. Acts 27 and 28 is, is a big, long story of one day in the Apostle Paul's life that was just a train smash. He is, he's, I'll give you the, the cliff note version. He's a prisoner with 276 other people on their way to jail in Rome. And that's bad news enough. Storm comes, they try to toil against the storm, can't do it. So they end up giving up, the ship is smashed, now they're in the middle of the ocean on driftwood. And Okay, that's bad. Then they drift over to an island that's filled with barbarians. That's bad too. They get on the island, light a fire, and as they light the fire and some light comes, a viper comes out and latches onto Paul's hand. Not like bites him and falls off. The, the text actually says that it hangs on there. Like he's just, you know, this snake is hanging on his arm. Now, if I'm Paul at that point in time, 
I'm kicking rocks. I'm, I'm like, seriously? <laughs> like, what did I do? Like that, I read that and I'm encouraged that I haven't had a day quite that bad that I can remember at least. I read that, I'm like, I praise the Lord that there's a story there that this guy who's a great Christian had some bad days in his life. That encourages me somewhat. It helps me to see that this St. Paul is, he's not perfect. He has issues. He has problems that enter into his life. And so do I. And a saint biblically is just someone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've come to the point where you've realized my sin has a penalty and I cannot pay the penalty myself and Jesus died on the cross to pay my penalty, was buried and rose again and my faith is in him, then you can say biblically and accurately, I'm a saint. Now let's, let's try this. I want to do an exercise with you. If, you. if you would say, I'm a Christian, look at the person next to you and just tell them, I'm a saint. How many of you that felt weird? Doesn't it feel weird? Like it's, it's accurate to view ourselves as a saint, but it does feel weird. Like no one puts on their business card, like I will remove your snow and I eat, I'm a saint. Like no one puts that on their, on their resume. I type 50 words a minute and I'm CPR certified and by, by the way, I'm a saint. We, we, we tend to shy away from that title and we tend to view ourselves through a different lens and, and to say, you know what, I, I kind of feel awkward to, to view myself that way. But I would contend, and this is really where the rubber meets the road for you in the meat of what I want to tell you this morning, I would contend that you need to embrace that term and view yourself that way biblically because your identity will determine your destiny. How you see yourself and what you think about yourself will determine what you do. Nobody talks to you more than you. You're in, you're in your head the most. And what you're telling yourself about yourself will determine how your life goes. Now, the cultural narrative that's being spun is entirely opposite of the Bible. The cultural narrative is, is live in a day and age of, of self-help and self-esteem and self-love and self-actualization. And all of them have one thing in common, and that's self. That my identity begins and ends with me and no reference to God. Modern psychology will start with you and end with you and will have no reference point as to God. And that's a problem because biblically, self is actually the problem and Jesus is the solution. The, the Bible answer is that you don't begin and end with self. You actually put yourself to the side and get off to the peripheral and put Jesus in the middle and begin to live life with him in mind, with him in the center. And this is important to grasp because if you don't do this, you have one option left. If you do not get your identity vertically from God and begin to see yourself as the Bible says, even if you don't feel it, but to begin to see yourself as the Bible says, and I know that, that the term saint may feel like a, a suit that's, you know, three sizes too big, but if you need to put it on and you need to embrace it because if you don't get your identity biblically, vertically from God, the only option on the table is for you to shop your identity horizontally. The only option you have left is to begin to compare yourselves amongst yourselves, which the Bible clearly says is unwise. It's for you to now begin to look at those that are around you and try to shop your identity out that way. Well, 
They, and here's what happens. One of two things, pride or despair every time. You either look and say, you know what? I feel like I'm more successful than they are. Good for me. I, I feel like I'm better looking than they are. Good for me. I, I feel like I'm smarter than they are. My family's better than they are. And pride swells up. Or the opposite happens. I wish I was successful as they are. I guess that I'm a loser. I'm not as good as looking at them, so I guess that makes me the ugly duckling. I wish, I wish that I had the family that, that they did. I guess that I'm, I'm a failure. And the, the temperature in the room literally just changed because this is where we live. We live oftentimes as Christians, shopping our identity out this way, comparing ourselves to other people. And, and it's one thing to compare yourselves around people that you do life with every single day. That's not smart. It's even, it's even less smart to start to shop your identity to people that are distant away and you're looking at their social media feed. And we, we do that. We, we pull up Facebook and start to scroll through and, you know, story number one, I bought a new house. Story number two, I'm on a dream vacation. Story number three, I just got married. Story number four, I built an orphanage in Rwanda. Story number five. <laughs> you're 60 seconds into that sucker and you just saw a highlight reel and you look at yourself and think like, what did I do today? I went to Taco Bell like I'm a loser. And that, we live there, don't we? At a spot, I found myself, I mean, despondent after looking at social media for a few minutes. And, and there's, there's a lot of science that actually is into, and telling us that that's really unhealthy for us many times. It, it doesn't tell you that it took 10 years to get the degree or it took five years to save for the house or that it took a lifetime to do it. That's not there. You just see the highlight, 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 highlight. You compare yourselves to them, start to shop your identity and start to think, who am I and what am I? Instead of saying, you know what, I'm a child of God. You know what, Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus gave himself for me. He has forgiven my sins. I am the righteousness of Christ. I'm a saint. And we are supposed to, as Christians, embrace that term and to find our relationship and our identity vertically with the Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt, in a room this size, some of you have lived in an identity crisis for a decade or two or three, maybe longer than that. So, some of you, someone labeled you at some point in time in your life, and you bought it. They told you that you were damaged goods. So now every relationship you have is with a psychopath because you feel like you have no value and no worth and who would, who would want me because I believe what they said about me that I'm damaged goods. Some of you believe, someone told you that you were a rebel when you were in elementary or middle school or high school and you bought it and you have, if you're honest with yourself, you lived out and you acted out on that impulse and you just tried to, to characterize what someone told you that you were, that you were a rebel. Someone told you you were, you, were, you were dumb, you couldn't learn, so you just you stopped trying to learn anything new at any point in time. Like that was on your birth certificate. Like your birth certificate said, such and such, born to so-and-so, on this day, weighed this much, uh, w was this many inches in length, and a rebel, and damaged goods. Your birth certificate didn't say that. Someone handed you an identity, and some of you gladly took it from them, put it in your back pocket, and you've lived life that way. And you're not supposed to. 
You're supposed to see biblically that Jesus Christ loved you so much that he paid for your sins and died for you. And that, and that I'm a saint. My own father has, has a testimony of this way. My dad was labeled a, a rebel early on in his life. Years, just a few years ago, our family has a mutual acquaintance who knew the principal of his elementary school. And they were golfing. And my dad has a unique name. His name is Reno. And <clears throat> they were golfing. And this, this guy told the principal, hey, yeah, I know this guy named Reno. He, he works at this church. And the principal said, that's, that's weird. I don't know many people named Reno, but working at a church, certainly not the Reno I know. Because uh, I can tell you, these are his words. Unequivocally, worst kid I ever had in 20 years. <laughs> worst kid I ever had in 20 years. And they were talking about the same guy. It was my dad. My dad lived life that way. He dropped out of school at age 16. Pursued racing motocross and, and semi-pro dirt bikes. Lived life that was, that was just with the title rebel all the time. Until he was 18 and someone shared with him the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he got saved. Amen. And everything changed. Everything changed. Twelve months later, he found himself in a Bible college learning what it, what it meant to be a preacher. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm thankful that my dad understood something when he came to faith in Jesus Christ, that his past identity and what he had done and the life that he had lived and the mistakes that he had made and what he had acted out upon was no longer who he was. That he was going to see himself as a child of God, as a saint of God, and he was going to live life with that in mind. And I'm thankful that my, my upbringing is vastly different than my father's upbringing. I know nothing of the alcoholism and abuse and string of divorces and crazy that was his home. I know nothing of it because he decided I am a Christian and I'm going to live life for Jesus Christ and I'm going to make sure that that is, that's my identity. I'm going to be secure in that. Amen. And your identity as a Christian will determine your destiny. It will set a script for you. It will chart a course for you. Even Christians can get messed up on this. And I, I, I want to thread a needle relatively carefully, but if you're a Christian and you're saved, sin is not your identity any longer. The Bible refers to humans as sinners over and over again. And, it, and it's a healthy view to, to say that mankind, that we're sinners. Yes, it is. But you find the term sinners used about 300 times in the Bible. There are maybe five, and I could argue the, those five away, but there are maybe five that refers to a Christian as sinner. But there are 200 times in the New Testament where a Christian is referred to as righteous, holy, unblameable, saint, sanctified, over and over and over again. And you are to see yourself in light of that and to act in that. And that will change how you act. That will change how you treat other people when you see them as a saint. It'll change everything. I, I, could, I could dwell too long. We could spend this whole sermon here. I'll, I'll move on with this. We do, th we do this with our kids. We, we completely reverse the biblical text on our kids. I love the little, the little ones that were up here today that we dedicated but we tell our, our little ones, till they're five, six, seven, eight, that they're good little boys and girls. And they're so good, and they make us so happy, and you're good, 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 good. And then they start to understand the gospel, and we tell them, actually, no, psych, you're a reprobate, and you need Jesus, and you're a sinner. He died for your sins. That's how bad you are. And we wonder why they struggle to come to terms with that. 
We've been telling them they're great, good little angels for five, six years. And then they get saved, and they enter into adolescence, and now they're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and now they're a Christian, and we start telling them how bad they are all the time. And we completely reverse the identity that they are to assume at before Christ and after Christ. And if we're not careful as Christians, we can mess that up. And that, that word is meant to profoundly impact us and help us see that if, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a saint. You are his child. He loves you. You can't be separated from that, and you're a saint. i got to move on. Secondly, shepherds. And I'll be quick. Paul says, with the bishops and the deacons, shepherds and servants. Now, I want you to write five terms down. If you're in the habit of taking notes, write five words down that will be helpful for you as, as you read your Bible. Write down uh, bishop, elder, pastor, overseer, I'll repeat these, and shepherd. Bishop, elder, pastor, overseer, shepherd. Those five words are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Those words are synonyms. They're all meant to, de to de describe and accentuate one office that's there in local church. The best example, I could give you several examples of this, but the best example of this is in Acts 20, where Paul calls the elders from Ephesus over, and he tells them that they are the overseers, or they're the bishops, and to feed the flock of God. And he looks at the same guys in the eye and says, you're the elder, you're the bishop, you're the pastor, you're the shepherd. So that, that's meant to describe the, the same office. In the New Testament, you really don't, there's another term that needs to be emancipated a bit. You don't find that there's a bishop who's presiding over a bunch of, or a conglomerate of, of churches. You find the opposite of that in the New Testament. You find one church and a group of deacons or a group of bishops inside of that one church. A good, healthy church will have a plurality. Paul uses the plural here. We'll have multiple pastors who are there shepherding, guiding, leading, that are there trying to own their responsibility and work for spiritual guidance and maturity inside of the church. This is, this is the model that we've employed here at our church. Pastor Mark, Pastor Rousey, Pastor Smith. All pastors, all equals. I do not work for Pastor Rousey and Pastor Smith, and Pastor Rousey and Pastor Smith do not work for Pastor Mark. We work together as a team, as bishops that are serving the Lord together. And inside of that office, biblically, there are, there are layers to it. There's rules for a bishop, there is responsibility for a bishop, and there's reward for a bishop. I've given you references in your notes so that you can look these up on your own time, but all of those are applicable. There are legitimate stipulations and rules for a bishop. It's not willy-nilly, whoever wants to do it can do it. There, there, are, there are guidelines. For example... A bishop has the responsibility to rule his house well and to have a healthy marriage and a healthy home life. Now that's a responsibility that odds are most of you do not have when it comes to where you serve on a day-to-day -day basis in your employment. I have four brothers. One's a principal, one's a lawyer, one's a police officer, and one's a retail manager. None of their companies care if they get a divorce. They don't lose their job if their home life is a mess. Now, I, on the other hand, do. There's, there's an extra layer of rules that are applicable to a bishop, and those are prescribed. In Titus and Timothy, they're very clear. There's also responsibility. A bishop or a pastor's responsibility is to lead and feed. 
The responsibility of the pastor is to, is to lead, or the pastor's plural, is to lead in local church ministry. Not to be the boss and not to be the dictator, because some people have taken that too far and have sought to be dictators. And, and the Bible says no to that. Don't t- take the leadership, not by constraint, but willingly is what Peter says. But a pastor's job is to lead and feed. The, the flock's job is to follow and swallow. I didn't make that up. Someone else wrote that. <laughs> but that's how it works, biblically. And, there, and some people have an aversion to this. And we talked about it last week. Some people don't like structure. They don't like accountability. They don't like authority. They don't like anyone being able to weigh in on their lives. But that's part of the responsibility of, of a pastor. Frankly, I don't enjoy that responsibility, but it, it comes, with, it comes with, the, with being a bishop. I, any, anyone a middle child in the room? We have any middle children? All right. I'm a middle child. My wife's a middle child. I'm naturally a peacemaker. By default, my personality is naturally be a, a peacemaker. I don't like to confront people. But Hebrews 13 makes it very clear that bishops and pastors watch for the souls of their flock. They're to give an account to God for them and literally have a responsibility to warn and to admonish and to guide and to shepherd and lead. Then there's what Paul says are deacons. Uh, that word is the same word as servant, diakonos. And inside of a local church, the, the healthy body of a local church is everyone is a saint, there's, there's a saved membership. We all know the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's an authority structure of there's, there's bishops, pastors, and there's deacons. And I don't say this to be self-serving. I say it just to tell you what the Bible says. There are deacons that are servants. And that's not, that's not a low place. Jesus said that whosoever wanted to be the greatest would be servant. So that is, that's a place of leadership to serve the church, but a, a true church is pastor-led and deacon-served. I'm thankful that Harvest Baptist Church for a long time has got that right. That, that has, has, we have a team of 10 deacons that I love the fire out of, who are great men and do so much behind the scenes that, that the church body never sees, but they serve behind the scenes and are incredible. But I'm thankful that they have understood biblically how that's supposed to work and how a church is supposed to function, and they have not sought to take the authority and the reins, but have sought to serve. That is how local church is supposed to work. And Paul lays that out in one verse. He lays that out. Saints with the bishops and the deacons. Here's the structure in the church. Last point, and I'm done. Their security. Verse number two, grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want you to understand from from this verse, and there's a lot that we could say, but what I want you to understand is that your relationship with God is paternal, not performance-based. There's grace and peace from God the Father. You you are not to live your Christian life with a to-do list to check off over and over again, performance-based. It's designed to be familial and paternal in nature. Now, your job is performance-based, probably, Odds are you have some criteria at your job that if you don't show up on time or if you don't meet the sales goals or whatever, that you'll lose your job. That's performance-based, rightfully so. School is performance-based. You get grades, report cards, it's performance-based. Sports, performance-based. We keep score. There's winners and losers at the end of the game. But your relationship with your family is not performance-based. With your own kids or your own grandkids, that's meant to be something that, that we love each other. There's a relationship and that can't be severed by anything that someone says or does. And your relationship with the Lord is the same way. You have grace and peace with God, not because of something that you've done, completely because of what he's done and because there's a relationship there. There's a paternal nature to to your relationship with God. 
And you're supposed to see it that way, that he is my father, that cannot be undone. I'm adopted, I'm sealed, I'm accepted in the beloved, and I'm good to go, and he wants to give me his grace and peace. The Greeks would start their letters with grace. The Jews would start their letters with peace, shalom. Paul starts his letter with grace and peace and says God's big enough for both of those, and he'll give them both. And we live in a world that needs grace and peace. And, and uh, we live in a world that lacks graciousness and lacks peace. And really it's because they lack relationship with the Father. And our goal as Christians is to strive together for the gospel and to introduce them to that relationship with the Father. But in the matter of two verses, there's a greeting with such profound significance. Paul and Timothy, senders, you know us, we know you, we love each other. Status, we're servants of Jesus Christ. Gladly, willingly, servants. Who are we writing to? Local church, spot, Philippi. Do local church well. How do you do local church well? Well, there's structure there. There's saints, broad term, applies to all of us. Embrace that. And there's bishops and deacons, leaders inside of the church. And there's security. There's grace and there's peace with God the Father. Not because of what you do, but because of what he's done. And I hope that as we begin this series on Philippians, those, those, that, those terms that are in two short verses will guide and govern how we see this entire letter as we begin to unpack it a little bit further next week.